Um dia de sol Eu fui pra trabalhar Beautiful souls, I'm Camille. And this is Erica of the Healthcare from the Soul, the Healer's Journey podcast where we listen to stories from heart-centered healthcare providers who are rewriting their story as healers of this world. Now more than ever, they feel dissonance within themselves and the system and are answering their soul's calling for something more. Erica and Camille host retreats around the globe for healthcare professionals interested in discovering more about their life's purpose in the healing arts. To learn more, head on over to the show notes. Let's go to the show. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you, Siri Sean, for joining us on Healthcare from the Soul. Great to be here. And thank you so much for the invite and for such a thoughtful topic for us to explore. I'm really excited to spend some time with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So the beginning of this podcast, the, the actually the second title of this podcast is The Healer's Journey. And we believe that the healer's journey follows along very similarly to the hero's journey, where there's a departure, where we notice that something is awry in our healthcare system, and it stirs something within us, and we depart And then there's the initiation, a nonlinear healing process. And then we come back and the return where we deliver care and service in the healing arts in a different way, in a new way. Mm. And the audience for this podcast is likely healthcare professionals, healers who are in the system and who may want to explore other ways. Can you describe and invite us into your story of the healer's journey? So I think what's really interesting when I really think about this question is that I I had a very early exposure to non-traditional roots of healing, not through my family of birth, but in college when I was in my pre-med years my digestive system, I always like to say, I didn't have a nervous breakdown. I had a digestive breakdown. And when that happened, I went to the student health and they prescribed for me a very potent barbiturate, phenobarbital, which was like, it made zero sense to me. But I, I often think that I have always called it sort of a divine happening that, that, that it was so potently wrong that it's, it caused me to go look somewhere else and to consider something else. And so this would have been early 1991 is a long time now. And when that happened, I happened to go to a small metaphysical bookstore that wasn't far from, I was was at University of Virginia. And I picked up a book on self-healing with Ayurveda. And, And thus became my... I almost think of myself as a dual winged creature, like, you know, one wing in each world and often feeling like, which is the real me, if you will. And so I really, from that point forward, incorporated many different alternative pathways of healing in spite of the fact that I was highly qualified and very highly trained as a medical doctor. So I went through a pre-med program and I had a master's degree in biology 
went to medical school. I did a residency in internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. I ultimately was and am still triple board certified internal medicine, integrative medicine, hospice and palliative medicine, and did a two-year integrative medicine fellowship. But along the way, I was always looking at things that were completely out of the system, Reiki, uh, Kundalini Yoga, nutrition, botanical medicine, crystals, fairies, gnomes, you name it, whatever, whatever might have been in that metaphysical bookstore, I had some arc of exploration um, along the way. And so that was a really, I think the initiation, if you will, came very early for me. And for many different eras of my life, I wanted to fully depart um, the classic medical model that most clinicians are finding themselves in. And I finally did that in 2018. I just couldn't do it after 20 years of trying to integrate and innovate. I was really burnt out because I really was existing in a lot of paradigms that were, were really pushing people who I worked with out of their comfort zones significantly. And I didn't have any significant backlash because you can be elegant in how you present these ideas. But I just realized, like, I'm, I'm just never going to really quite be able to pull this off. And by the time I left, I was too burnt out, too exhausted, too disillusioned to create my own practice. That would have been the worst possible thing. Some people ask me that. Why didn't you go create your own practice? I was like, you, clearly, you have not seen the assignment here, so to speak. <laughs> like, I have just spent 20 years plus grinding away, 25 years, trying to, to innovate and create pathways of awareness and have been in some ways successful, but in other ways, largely unsuccessful at facilitating those types of conversations in healthcare. And so the last three years, I've really been focused on supporting younger career physicians to navigate that and have coaching and support in ways that I never did that probably could have helped with some of the burnout and expectations. And so that's kind of in a nutshell, that's uh, there's clearly more, but that's in a nutshell kind of what happened for me. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Can you talk to us about that moment or was there a moment where you just knew you couldn't do this in that particular model anymore? You labeled or mentioned the word burnout. Can you talk to us about what is burnout, I'm now layering questions over questions, but really kind of wanting to get into that moment where you decided it's time to step away. Well, I had been, I had in the pre, in the last role that I had was a large national company with many offices. And I had been given initially a role to be their lead for integrative medicine and then internal politics and their march towards an IPO eliminated all dialogue and all integrative practitioners and my role. And in many ways, that was sort of the writing on the wall because there's a incredible draw in the marketing department to talk about lifestyle and integrative medicine because 95% of patients want that model. But when it comes to implementing and supporting the providers, insurance-based models have a very hard time because it's they don't adjust for the time involved. And there's ways to creatively bill and create group visit models, but there was, no, there was no sense of innovation because everybody was really more focused on meeting their investor expectations. And 
I sort of hung in for another year and a half. And then there was another integrative provider who was leaving. And they basically said, well, we'll just move all of such and such physicians, patients into your panel. And I said, because mm, I'm already overbooked and very, very busy. And that is completely 100% not, that's not equitable to me. And my main supervisor said, well, that's what, that's what we're doing. And I thought, wow, okay, because then we're done. You know, it was just like that. And again, maybe perhaps one of those happy accidents in a way, because shortly after that, unfortunately, my dad became very ill and passed away. And I do think that the context of, and I'll explain my own version of burnout, but the context of the burnout and him dying, if I had been trying to juggle a practice at that time, I would have maybe have made a significant medical error. So I feel grateful in the timing. I do believe in the timing in my life as painful and as much like resistance that I will sometimes have to whatever transition is needing to happen. I can look back and, you know, really trust that whatever transition, whatever energy was coming in was appropriate, needed and necessary. From the burnout standpoint, there are very classic definitions, you know, depersonalization, lack of personal efficacy, you know, there's three or four of them that are kind of classically looked at. But for me, burnout really showed up as a couple of things. One, you can't separate yourself from the work anymore. Like you're, you're dreaming work, you're charting in your pajamas, you're never really creating continuity outside the job, which means you never really get rest. You never really rejuvenate. You never really step away from the stressors. So the nervous system never deregulates. You're kind of in that persistent fight, flight, perhaps freeze mode. The second thing is that um, for me, burnout began to show up as a lot of physical issues because of that. So I started to develop um, migraines and early sort of perimenopause and like a whole host of really like I, the week, randomly enough, the day I told my supervisor, if you will, that I was leaving, I woke up to a massive swelling in my face. I was like, do I have a tumor? Like, am I dying? Is that why this happened? But it turned out that I just had developed a really severe like um, stone in my parotid gland and it had just swollen out like this is exquisitely painful. And so it was just, but it was so random. I didn't even clinically know what it was having been in medicine for 20 years. It's not necessarily something that, that is that common. And when I went into the ER, they of course knew because they're more used to high acute, you know, acute events. But my, I woke my husband up at 2 a.m. and I said, I think I'm dying. Like, I have no idea what has happened. I, I've thrown my world into a tailspin and now this is happening because, you know, when you when you leave without a plan, it's a big deal when you leave without a plan. And uh, at that point, I thought I had various ideas. But unfortunately, the pandemic came, which really also sort of kiboshed a lot of things that I was looking at. But I think that there was that was the main focus for me is that I couldn't rest. I couldn't come back into that parasympathetic nervous system where I could really relax. So you're in this sort of vigilant state and you're just irritable and mentally you're not as clear or as focused as you might like to be. 
And then I developed a lot of physical things. And of course your mood, you're dealing with depression and anxiety in that context, maybe not at a clinical level where you need treatment or medication, but you're experiencing your thoughts are not your friends, you're, you're having a heavy feeling, your mind is sort of always three steps ahead of you telling you all the 18 things that could go wrong with the patients you're seeing. Um, and of course, I'm trying to innovate in the midst of all of that, which also took a lot of time because the onus for me in terms of how the practice structured is that I ultimately just said to my work, I said, listen, pay me for 24 hours and I'm going to set up patients every other hour so that I can have the time I need with them still billing insurance, but I'm going to just have longer visits on me. And, um, you know, obviously everyone wins in that model, but the clinician, except for, for me, I couldn't do medicine any other way. So there was this really big um, moment when I, when they said, oh yeah, we're just going to bring all those other patients into your panel. And I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And it was very spontaneous. It was like, boom, okay. It was like a, a kernel of popcorn popping. Okay, we're done. We're done. And that's what that's what happened for me. It was both instantaneous and then also something that had been building for a while. Yeah, right? for sure. I think this idea with burnout and um, and when it's mentioned, when providers mention it, or when it's mentioned even within you know, systems talking about provider burnout and self-care, is it's this idea a lot of times that providers think it's their fault for not having proper work-life balance. Can you talk on that at all? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a absolutely burnout is not the absence of self-care burnout is not the absence of mindfulness burnout is not the absence of self-regulatory mechanisms burnout is a highly adaptable creative empathic human being intersecting with a, a system driven by values that are not congruent with the health vitality and well-being well-being of the healer period i don't see it any other way it is repeatedly, I've seen that. And you, you can see driven by profit. And I always used to say to patients, listen, there's 10 people eating the cheese between you and me. You come to your, you know, your employer or you come to the table with a chunk of cheese, your dollar or your money. And there's so many people between you and me taking little nibbles on that cheese so that by the time it comes to our time and our ability to interact, the cheese is slim. And so nobody's actually satisfied with the system. The patients aren't, the clinicians aren't, even the way it's structured. I'm actually a big fan of a single payer system. I don't know that we'll ever implement it, but my rationale behind that, and they have done it somewhat successfully in the VA system. Uh, interestingly enough, we don't always think of the VA as being an innovator, but they have implemented a integrative whole health model in the VA system. But that's been something, um, it's just really difficult because if you think about the billing model, truly the employer, if they're in a, you know, insurance-based model or they have negotiated contracts, it varies. But if they're in just a straight up billing model, it 100% behooves them 
to have you see more volume. If there's a cap and a sense of maintaining the health of the individual and reducing utilization of the system through investing in the individual, that's very empowering to both the patient and the provider because you then get to roll out lifestyle measures, mindfulness, creative solutions to chronic issues because you get built into the system time. But the system doesn't really generally uh, factor that in. And so unfortunately, the creative, innovative providers who are trying to um, really roll those programs out or that type of care out are often met with resistance. But I will say, more than ever, I'm hearing about medical systems doing a little more than they have in the past, investing more in integrative models, recognizing that they're evidence-based, recognizing that um, looking at lifestyle metrics is actually very potent for the healthcare system and for how our dollars are spent and that investing in people is worthwhile. But that change was, it, it's still slow to come and it was a little late for me, honestly. Yeah, but I, there's no part of me anywhere that feels like, I mean, you were talking about people that go into healthcare, whether it's nurse practitioners, PAs or physicians are very bright, creative, well-adjusted people, they work hard, they show up, they're compassionate. Most of them have done a lot of inner work in the midst of their own journey as healers, whether they say it that way or not, you know, just they're incredible people. And the fact that there's an epidemic of burnout to me is there's really nothing in that equation that sits solely on the shoulder of the provider or the clinician. Sure, there's adaptive things that they can do. And I actually work on that in my coaching practice. We work, we work on better boundaries. We work on adjusting and accepting the system for what it can offer. And of course, self-care where we can. Sometimes the practices or call schedules are too busy and people need to leave. And that's really difficult, both emotionally, financially, intellectually, but it does happen. The, the clients that you work with, new graduates, is that right? New doctors? Not as much. I'm more working with um, mid to late stage career physicians that have done, say, for example, an integrative medicine fellowship. So I call them sort of lifelong learners. And um, like, you know, they really are, to me, they're true healers. They, they're on a journey to understand both themselves and the context in which they share their unique gift in the context of a maladapted system. And we do that under the umbrella of a yoga and Ayurveda, which is a his the whole person healing system that originates um, thousands of years ago in India that I also took several years off to study along the way. So I have a certain uh, amount of expertise in that field that's a little unusual. Um, I've had a very atypical, unusual career, and I, I sort of cherish that and always like to tell physicians and other people who feel concern or worry, it's going to be okay. Somehow it, it will be okay. It will work out. Even when there's been very difficult, bad outcomes, you know, medical malpractice cases, board actions, everything can be met with um, growth and ease given that you have the right resources to help you navigate it through. And I always say the most important thing you recognize is that you don't have to go through it alone. A lot of people sort of have that 
you know, uh, winged horsemen, like, you know, I'm charging into battle, I can do this all by myself. I always say, don't do it by yourself. There's no, there's no reason you find people to coach you find a therapist or a counselor to work with if you need to get medication support if the intensity is really leaving you feeling very bereft and uninvolved and unfocused in your family life and support is there and unfortunately you know healing the healer often requires the healer to say i am at sea i need the life jacket i need the o-ring like I need the oxygen and they will some, you know, I would conclude myself in this, you know, sometimes you're like, I think I'm drowning here, but I'm still not asking for help because I'm the helper. And so, um, gosh, if there was one, one really pivotal piece of information that I think most people who might be intersecting in their career and thinking about other things is to really recognize like getting help is normal. Your patients come to you for help. <laughs> Friends and family go for help. The healer can go for help and they've not lost any of their ability to serve or heal others. In fact, you know, perhaps even more so when they feel rested and emotionally settled and physically well. So I think it's, yeah. That's a beautiful reminder. I think from early on in pre-med or even in high school, we're just trained to do it on our own, to be the gunner, to just, yeah, never ask for help. And it's such a big step and leap forward when you're able to open up and receive that help. First of all, ask, and then to be able to receive that is really, it's monumental. Um, can you share with us some tools or techniques or um, guidance that you share with your clients when they first sign on to work with you? Sure. So again, I'm a little off the beaten track, but um, I actually believe that from the Ayurvedic model, there's two really critical things, three really critical things that are not often spoken of in the classic, even in the integrative community. And um, the first thing is our relationship to light. So we think of it like, oh yeah, light is important, but actually light is pivotal. And um, I love Andrew Huberman's lab at Stanford. He's a neuro uh, ophthalmology. I'm, I don't think he's a physician. I think he's a PhD researcher in neuro ophthalmology. And he talks a lot about very particular retinal cells that are stimulated in the early morning light because the angle of the sun and the contrast between yellow and blue is most particular then that activate the circadian pathways, the neurohormonal pathways for vitality. And by that, I mean that early morning light activation gives us a, it helps tell the body, we want that cortisol surge in the morning versus the evening. So mood disorders often have a, a delayed cortisol surge. Second thing it does is it gives a melatonin surge about 14 hours later. And we know that that pineal gland, the melatonin is responsible for the wind down, gives us that rest and rejuvenative quality. And most people with burnout have very, very poor sleep. It, it's because the body actually is never fully in tune with any kind of rhythm. The second um, 
component of that is that it actually helps dopamine favorably, the dopamine pathways. And the third component of that is that it actually positively impacts the production of testosterone or estrogen, which we know this X hormones have potent roles in mood and neurophysiologic actions through their hormonal cascades. All of that merely through the exposure of light and activating the circadian pathways appropriately. So this relationship to, I call it rhythmicity is resiliency. So this quality of having a rhythmic relationship to, and this actually came out with data from Harvard Sleep Lab and from Sachin Panda's work on the circadian rhythm and circadian clock is that um, there's the more we can create a rhythm within our day. So even five minutes, early morning sun, waiting an hour before our first calorie, if we need to, you know, some people are doing time-restricted eating even longer, doing our largest meal in the midday, which actually is very closely correlated to theories in Ayurveda, not consuming calories two to three hours prior to wind down or bedtime, and also giving the body regular exposure to social events, to eating times, to exercise times, that all of that be can become as rhythmic as possible actually helps our circadian rhythm. The body actually loves rhythmicity. And we don't actually talk about, we talk about the good habits, but we don't talk about how valuable it is for the circadian rhythm, which is actually sort of like, you could be doing great things, but swimming upstream, if you're not sort of paying attention to the rhythm that the body's trying to establish. And I think things like flow state and feeling ease and feeling empowered often come when that rhythmicity is well intact. Um, two other things that I often talk about quite a bit. So um, in context to that, usually what I'll do is ask people to wake up uh, between 5.30 and 6 and be outside for 10 to 15 minutes if they can. If they can't, you know, appropriate skin if they need you know, protection, not wearing sunglasses. And um, that can actually make a huge difference for people. It's very remarkable, the impact. Um, the second series of things, and it sort of stems from this, is actually appreciating how potent our five senses are for delivering us into more healthy versus less healthy. So for example, resting our eyes in the day, there's a 20-20-20 rule. So you might take 20 seconds to look 20 feet away um, from your keyboard for 20 seconds every 20 minutes. So, or, you know, resting the palms over the eyes. We might think about the sounds that are happening in our home. Is there a lot of white noise? Do we have soothing sounds? Could you have mantra music on or music that's soothing that helps bring relaxation into the nervous system? Are you favoring you know, salty, sweet tastes, or are you favoring bitter, astringent, pungent tastes that have, you know, rich phytochemistry in them? From a smell standpoint, are, is your home filled with endocrine disruptors, artificial smells, candles, fragrances, or are you inviting, you know, the qualities of nature, not confusing the senses? Um, it, you know, again, this kind of quality from a touch standpoint in Ayurveda, we talk about self-massage. It's called Abhyanga is actually something that's done every day. So you're nourishing the skin, oiling the skin, bringing vata down, bringing that irregular rhythm down.
And the third area, which I spend a lot of time on, so these are the three main areas that, that I like to focus on, because a lot of change actually happens, um, is learning to relax with breath work and mindfulness. And I, I know these are perhaps overdone, but breath work and pranayama specifically um, can be very therapeutic, even something as simple as I just had a very stressful interaction with a patient or with an admin doing something called alternate nostril breathing, where you start on the left side, inhaling, exhaling on the right, and appreciating the value that just something simple like pranayama can bring to letting that nervous system come back into a safe, regulated state. And so a lot of a lot of what I teach is about helping that nervous system to remember how it knows how to thrive. Our nervous system actually drives immunity. It drives digestion. It drives microbiome health. There's so much. And that that's a symbiotic relationship, right? The microbiome talks back, you know, the, the stress levels, the emotional mental state talks back. It's, it's not a one-way street. But these are activities and mindsets that help us not feel like we're swimming upstream so that we have good ability to enact new habits. And by that, we could look at like lifestyle medicine pillars, which include um, meaningful connection, stopping smoking if you need to, removing harmful substances, exercising routinely, sleeping, good sleep hygiene, and good nutrition. I find that most people actually want to do all those things, but there's these impediments in their ability to start new habits. And so if you get the day started right with a couple of small things, a little breath work, a little um, early morning sun, those early dopamine uh, activations give the body, mind, spirit a continuum of today's going to be safe, today's going to be productive, um, it's going to be a good day. And when we start the day on our phone, you know, without much gratitude and scrolling, doom scrolling and saying nothing's ever, ever going to be okay, nothing's ever, ever going to work out but I'm going to just, you know, keep showing up and keep trying. It's really difficult. That's a very lonely life. Very, you know, very difficult to spend day in and day out feeling that way when some relatively simple interventions can actually make a big difference, but people have to do them. No matter who the person is, they have to still make the choice, whether they use a habit tracker or a piece of paper or pair it with a habit that works. There's nothing like, delivering information, but the individual still has to make that active choice that there's value and, um, I don't know, capacity, energy, desire. Uh, so I do, I do tend to price my coaching higher because I want people to feel <laughs> they're in, I could maybe price it lower, but I price it high so that they're going to show up and do the things that they actually want the results for. And when coaching is priced, this is more business modeling kind of discussion, but you know, when things are priced lower, people are like, ah, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. But when things are priced higher, they're like, I better do that. Like I'm paying to do this. And uh, I find that that, that is a sometimes not always a, an important motivating feature to coaching just as a small aside. I want to ask you another question, but I was, I want to know if you'd be comfortable teaching us a breathing technique. Oh, sure. Do you yeah. want to learn like alternate nostril breathing? Something that maybe our audience would appreciate for a quick uh, yeah. relaxation break. Let me, um, let me turn the light on here. It's gotten a bit dark. 
And for those of you listening, you cannot see that Sherry Chan's face light up as she is talking about these three different um, stages. I mean, just really pure joy. Yeah. Yeah. To me, this is medicine. I mean, honestly, (laughs) this is, these are the, these are the tools that give people the capacity to, and they're free. That's the other thing. You know, I, having just said what I said about coaching is one thing, but from a medical model standpoint, I always resisted a concierge model because I always felt like the knowledge that I had been given largely subsidized when you really look at it needed to be in the hands of everyone and not just pulled away for the elite. Coaching is a little different. It's a different process. It's a different journey. And obviously I had to find a way to make a living again. And so um, but anyway, so everything that I just talked about is 100% free, which I love because that means that it's accessible for anyone. It doesn't, there's really no excuse other than busyness of the morning. And most people, usually you can work with it just a little bit to shift things. So anyway, so let's do, um, let's do just some alternate nostril breathing. So I'll talk this through as though you can't see me, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So first thing I want you to do is just kind of get your feet rooted on the ground. And if you can notice your hips, and again, this is not medical advice. (laughs) So I like to preface everything I do by saying that this is not a replacement for medical care or your therapeutic relationship with your provider. Um, But just resting the feet on the ground. And if you can just sort of gently close your eyes down, especially since you can't see me. And um, just noticing your feet the texture of the ground, touching your feet and taking a moment to just link right and left hand, putting a little bit of pressure on each side, just waking up each hemisphere, sort of gently pressing right to left, left to right, just noticing any tension in the upper neck. Gently relax the hands down just for a moment, keeping the eyes closed letting the elbows relax, the shoulders relax, tucking the chin just a little bit, closing the mouth and just noticing a big inhale, expanding the belly and exhaling, squeezing the belly back. And just noticing the rhythmic nature of the breath, the coolness of the air as you inhale, and the warmth of the air as you exhale through a closed mouth, just noticing that over over time. Now, what we're gonna do is something called alternate nostril breathing. And what I'd like you to do is fold your middle three fingers so they're touching your palm and you have your thumb up and your pinky up, almost like a hang 10, like you're gonna go surfing. And bringing your arm to 90 degrees, so you want to expand the lungs, put your right thumb, uh, this would be your right hand you're doing this with, put your right thumb over your right nostril and inhale on your left side. And we'll just do a practice here very slowly. So inhaling on the left side and then gently putting the pinky, closing the left nostril, and exhaling on the right side. And now inhaling on the right side. 
placing the thumb over the right nostril and exhaling on the left side. And again, inhaling on the left side, closing the nostril with the pinky and exhaling on the right side. Inhaling on the right side. Closing the nostril with the thumb and exhaling on the left side. Inhaling on the left side. Closing the nostril with the pinky and exhaling on the right side. And we'll do this one more time. Inhaling on the right. Closing the nostril, exhaling on the left. Inhaling on the left nostril. Closing that left nostril with the pinky and exhaling on the right. And now gently letting the hand down into the lap, doing a big inhale and holding that precious breath just for a count of two or three, a little bit longer if it's comfortable for you. And as you exhale through an open mouth, just a big sigh. <sighs> and just taking a moment to notice the body. Good, and before you open your eyes, just rub those palms together just slightly and place the palms over your eyes, noticing how dark, how relaxed the eyes feel with no light. Let your tongue relax in your mouth. Let your eyes relax. And just gently, gently scoot your palms away, letting the light come in. And then gradually sort of opening your eyes, coming back into this moment. And that was probably about four or five minutes of just very gentle breathing, mindfulness. But this um, rhythmicity of using the right and left nostril helps the nervous system equilibrate itself. In yoga, it's called Ida and Pingala, the, the moon channel and the sun channel. And we could think of that in some ways as the uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. Ah, thank you so much for that. <clears throat> Absolutely. So now we can continue on um, <laughs> feeling nourished and refreshed as we come <laughs> to the second half of the podcast. Yeah. The, the parasympathetic is in full effect. Yes. <laughs> Here we go to calm and connect. Yes. So can you tell me about what do you help your do you support your clients in not only their own um, personal uh, self-development and um, can't talk, but do you also help them with uh, business building and yes. Okay. 
So it's kind of interesting. So the coaching piece came across very organically. So initially, I was actually going to partner with some investors to open a lifestyle medicine center. So we would have had um, mindfulness, yoga, an obesity medicine doctor, a culinary center, sort of been a lot of culinary medicine, which is a big passion of mine. And we were a week away from signing our lease when COVID hit. So I'm so grateful because we were looking at 4,000 square feet of group-based visits. <laughs> Again, divine providence. Like had that gone through, it would have been devastating. You know, three, two, three years of no nobody allowed to be in person <laughs> and carrying this huge mortgage. I think it would have crushed me, frankly. So I am so grateful that um, the timing on that was what it was. I'm tr tremendously disappointed that something like that has not been able to sort of be birthed through me because of the pandemic. And unfortunately, I also, I always like to say I'm remarkably empathic. And so I had some sort of version of COVID literally the first week it was here and no testing ever like proved it, but I developed bilateral pneumonia, pulmonary edema, very, very sick, having never been sick really ever with a viral illness in my entire career. And so um, I had to embark on sort of a healing journey. And I had a lot of those post-COVID like long haul syndromes, like dysautonomia, if I wasn't already, probably if they were gonna look at like some of the data sets, I imagine they would see that people that are dealing with burnout are gonna be more prone to long haul COVID because the nervous system's already dysregulated. So a lot of the long haul stuff is really being mediated by the autonomic dysregulation that was probably latently there for someone. Um, so I had to work very hard on that. I developed a really bad migraine occipital neuralgia, like pain syndrome. It was a really kind of miserable portion of my, my journey as a healer. I required multiple different healers. Like I went from, I'm good. I don't need help to like having 14 medical team members from massage therapists to osteopath to cranial sacral to couples therapy to um, neurologist to, I mean, the list goes on. So um, it was a time of very intense physical healing. And I, in many ways, I'm still sort of walking my way out of that energy wise, but I was feeling a bit lost. And one day I was in a Facebook group. This is a very serendipitous story. I was in a Facebook group and this woman was saying, I have this very successful health coaching program that I'm doing for patients. And I was like, hmm, okay, let me check this out. I reached out to her and I said, I'm kind of lost. I don't, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, she says, oh, I have this business coach and um, maybe you would like to talk to her. Now, I didn't know much about coaching at all. I didn't know that I had suddenly been like whisked into the coaching world unbeknownst to me and sold a very premium package, something I will likely never charge anyone. Um, but I was sort of, I don't know if desperate was the right word, but I was really just floundering. I said, I don't, I really have no idea what I'm going to do. And this coach basically said, you're so uh, unique in that you have this integrative knowledge and this knowledge in Ayurveda. And there's really no other allopathic physicians quite suited to be able to talk about both to the depth that you can. Why don't you do a coaching program on Ayurveda? And I was like, that's absurd. Um, yeah, that's cool. But that's what a coach does is they drop these kind of nuggets and you have to kind of like 
first you have to meet with all your internal resistance with glee and excitement. Oh, there you are. Limiting beliefs A through Z, exhibit one, you know, and you have to start chiseling away at them and looking at them, examining them, letting them go, figuring out what actually is true, what is valid. So I actually happen to be um, tech savvy. I don't know how that also came into the equation, but I like design. I had been um, studying website design for years. And um, so I just decided I would build a platform and um, design the course and do the marketing. And where for other people that might've been a really big limiting factor for me, it was just part of the fun because I wasn't working, right? We have to remember, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a do, doer, like it's very difficult. Like even today I had to put my leg up to let the knee heal. And my husband was like, can you just not be doing things all day today? I was like, no, I need to be productive. <laughs> and that may never leave me. I mean, I just may never leave me. But so I put this program together and then I had been a educator at the Center for Integrative Medicine in their nutrition curriculum for many, many years, which is the primary integrative medicine fellowship. And as a, as a result of that, there was a lot of goodwill from to me as a person and people who'd always said, I would like to, to just study and work with you more. And I said, okay, well, here's your opportunity. And eight people signed up and I was flabbergasted. Like it really blew my mind. And in true sort of like digital creation land, I had not created the content yet. So the first time through was a bit of an intense journey because it was like a lot of sort of downloads for lack of a better word. I'd be like, okay. So now we have a, a 300 page workbook that's beautifully designed and we have lectures and mindfulness and cooking classes. And so the 12 week process is really phenomenal they get an Ayurvedic experiential box that's paired with journaling. There's a cooking class each week, a mindfulness class each week and a yoga class. And then two hours of group review and coaching to um, and a recorded lecture of Ayurvedic principles, which really allows for a lot of the metaphysics to come through as well. I gave a lecture recently to medical students and it was like a little bit deer in headlights. I was like, yeah, I don't, you're still getting the basics. Like this is very, very advanced to where they were at. And I was like, oh, that was not good. But I hadn't talked to medical students in a really long time. And a friend asked me to come talk about Ayurveda to medical students. And I thought it was a very basic introductory lecture. But what I really appreciated afterwards was that they're still getting their bearing in the general knowledge. And they're, and they're young, you know, they're still discovering a lot about themselves. But one of them walked out with me who did actually stay to the end of the lecture, which I can't say very many of them did. So that was a kind of a humbling moment for me. But anyway, we're walking out to my car and she said, oh, you know, I wanted to just let you know, I do all these chakra meditations on YouTube. And I said, oh, that's, that's wonderful. It's fantastic. Did you know that that comes from Ayurveda and Vedic knowledge? No, I didn't know that. It's like as though it just had dropped from the ethers. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of metaphysical sort of new age principles that have never really been called and linked to their lineage. And so I actually do a lot of myth busting and we go deep into what a chakra conceptually is within the Vedic knowledge base. And it's 
linked to senses, it's linked to elements, it's linked to color, it's linked to um, yoga postures, it's linked to sound, a mantra. So again, we I don't like to do things superficially, but the other thing that happened to answer your question is that people began DMing me randomly saying, who does your stuff? <laughs> and I said, oh, that's me. And they said, I want to learn how to do that. And I said, oh, okay, well, then I will coach you. And so I don't advertise that I provide business marketing, branding, strategy, web design. I think it's actually a very affordable service because usually they end up with a branding message, a logo, a website, and templates for their social media for about, you know, the cost of half a website in most instances. But I have a feeling of a certain seva because usually I only work with integrative providers who are really going off the beaten track. And there's a, just a part of me that's like, I want you to succeed. Like I, I want the system to rue the day they crossed you. <laughs> like There's a little vindictive old hag in me, you know, I'm almost 50 and I'm in this whole menopause crone transition, getting killed by hot flashes and all this physiology. And so the mentor like Baba Yaga is emerging and she's like, mm -mm, no, Mm -mm. <laughs> you know, we're done with this. We're not entertaining all this, you know, <laughs> bullshit of like really beautiful, capable healers just withering in this system. If they want to go out and strike on their own. I want to help them. And so um, I may end up doing quite a bit more around that, but um, I had to be very gentle with my body it's just gone through so much. And now I'm in this weird like menopause process, which further deregulates the nervous system in ways that are like epic as I'm having a hot flash. So <laughs> it's really embarrassing to be like teaching. I'll be teaching and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you realize you just don't give a fuck anymore. Excuse me, edit that out. But like, you just don't care. You're like, I am... I am no more fucks to give. Like I am here and I'm showing up. I'm doing my part. And whatever it was that was stressing me out in my 20s, <laughs> it's not here anymore. So, you know, maybe, maybe it gets better physically for me. I've always just had a really kind of difficult time with my body. But it's also been the laboratory that's taught me so much. I joke, I always say I probably would have been eating bonbons, living a bougie life by the pool if I had had perfect health. Like there's just a certain inertia in me that would have wanted to have sort of done that deep dive, but it just they pushed the, it just wasn't there. So, you know, you never know how it's all meant to transpire, but yeah. Yeah. Full and hot. Maybe, maybe one day, maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah, there's still, there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> so, Bring me the estrogen. <laughs> so, um, when you were this dual winged, when you both had your allopathic and the metaphysical parts of you in practice, how were you received? Was there any resistance? Um, is it, again, you know, this is an interesting question. And one of my dear friends, I, I, this isn't going to be a humble statement at all. Um, one of my dear friends that I grew up with, she said, you could talk to a king or a beggar the same. Like you have such an ability to connect with people that it 
whatever the context, they feel seen and heard, no matter who's in front of you, whether it's your supervisor, your coworker, a patient, a king or a queen. And, and I trained at Mayo Clinic, so we saw all kinds of fancy people, which sometimes is a little crazy making. But um, I found that civil discourse just always went a long way and being knowledgeable and knowing who your audience was, was how I never really had a lot of resistance other than the practice model, which no one could change. And it pained people to see me struggling in it, but no one could innovate within that context because the system can't adjust for one person. It just can't because it creates this cascade effect. But I had I, my patients were often the CEOs and doctors because they actually want the care that's, you know, Mayo Clinic trained internal medicine. There are very few internists that do outpatient medicine. So there was that. There was this group that really loved that knowledge base that I had. I was well-respected in my um, by my subspecialists because my notes were always very thorough and I was, you know, went the extra mile to be sure they had the information they needed to do their consults well. And they would see that, you know, I was drip irrigating all the things I believed, which included for many of them, things that were very logical. The Ayurveda piece came later in my career um, and people wanted it, but there was no context of delivering an Ayurvedic model and insurance-based model, it's just inconceivable. Um, there was just so much explaining to do, let alone assessing in this very non-traditional way. So resistance is always a funny thing, right? Because if you bring excellence into your care, you're, you are inevitably people are going to resonate to excellence. And there's no reason an integrative model can't be excellent other than the burnout factor of it just taking more time. So um, I didn't actually have a lot of animosity and oftentimes people who inherited patients that I had seen in whatever practice I had been in would always say, uh, it's a Siri Chun patient. Like, this is so complicated. Like I always had the most complex panels because patients knew I'd get like a Facebook group would post, Hey, this doctor will actually sit with you and listen to you. And Really, it was about mindful presence. Whoever was in front of me had 100% of my attention if I felt okay physically, mentally. You know, occasionally you'd have really off days where you're just like, I don't know what's going on. I'm migraine or didn't sleep well or something's going on in my personal life. But, you know, 90%, 95% of the time, whoever's in front of you has your full, had my full awareness. And with that came intuition that was often... Um, affirming for people and it gave them a sense of safety to share and open up. And because a lot of patients that I saw were CEOs of healthcare systems or other doctors, um, you just, you just bring a model of excellence into the care. And a lot of people really said to me, it was a tragic loss for healthcare when I left because they just said, you're so unique and you're so good at what you do. And I said, well, the N of one cannot survive in this system. It cannot, it, it thrives on more mediocrity than excellence. And I hate to say that so bluntly. And again, this is not a, this is just fact. Like, you know, my, 
I just always brought excellence into my care. I made mistakes along the way, but I always acknowledged them. And I always circle back to people when I did, if I could. Um, so being excellent doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. I think that's a really important distinction. It just means you bring um, precision and logic and intuition, the gamut of that into your assessments and into your care plans. And sometimes, you know, that's really difficult to teach an early career physician, which is why I think I do a little better with people that have a lot of seasoned kind of clinical experience because intuition really does start to kick in with pattern recognition over longer periods of time. Like the longer you've done it, the more you're apt to sort of see a rhythm of a presentation. Like, okay, I'm seeing these, these things. This is just likely how we're going to see it turn out. Then you can start to innovate within and shift the standard outcome through your innovation and your intuition. But when you're just getting started first couple of years, you're like, wait, what was that medicine? I got to look that up. I'm not up to date. I, and it's good. You need to do that. So if somebody's younger in their career listening, please keep doing that. Stay the course. You know, there's nothing wrong with being in that space and you never stop looking things up, but you do get more into your comfort zone in your knowledge base, what you know, what you don't know, what you like to refer to, or if you're a specialist, how you handle the more, you know, the zebras and the more unusual cases. So I guess long answer, I really didn't have a lot of animosity. I didn't have a lot of resistance other than people just basically saying, we can't give you more time. And that's when I innovated in my own way. I said, okay, well, here's how you're going to give me more time. But I'm, I am, I am working more than you're paying me to work. So as I mentioned, I went to 24 hours and I spaced it out in the days so that I could take the visits longer when I needed to. So I came in five days a week at being paid 24 hours. I mean, that was the only way. Again, no easy solution. You mentioned at one point um, providers providing care that match their gifts. What is your unique gift? You know, it's interesting you ask that because I was actually thinking about that the last day or two. And I actually think my unique gift is pattern recognition. Um, Ayurveda sits in a very profound quality of appreciating patterns based on the five elements. And the five elements have qualities that show up in individual and when I first started studying Ayurveda, I realized that I had been studying patterns all my life. I may even be a little neurodiverse. <laughs> my husband would definitely claim it. So, um, you know, it is what it is. And so uh, I have a certain genius for recognizing very subtle patterns to very gross patterns, which makes you a good clinician in a lot of ways. Because, But what I think I do differently is I actually use all my senses to tell me about patterns, what I'm smelling in the room, the rhythm of their speech, perhaps a smell, a scent they have on their body, what their pulse feels like, what their body feels like when I touch them. All of that is part of an Ayurvedic assessment that gives you the qualities and predictive nature. And, and I actually believe though we're not nearly there with AI, eventually we will be more predictive in our ability from all the wearable information and we'll have much more sophisticated 
continuous glucose monitoring type devices. And we will be able to say, when you don't sleep, when your stress level's here, when your nervous system's here, when your nutrition's here, this is where you're going to be in 10 years. This is where you're going to be in 15 years, predictively. And so I would definitely say it's an, it's an unusual thing to say, but I would, I would characterize my unique genius as being very good at pattern recognition. And unfortunately, it usually means I see the writing on the wall of organizations very quickly. And then I try to navigate my foresaid inside about that. It's not true. It'll change. But I, you know, it's not just the human condition. It's the external conditions that I'm also reasonably good at recognizing patterns. And as a coach, um, there's certain stylized ways that people think. So certain thought patterns that become very clear to me. Okay. We're in a thought pattern of, um, you know, this is not my lane or I'm an imposter or, or, um, you know, I'm not good enough. You know, there's this kind of lanes that a lot of clinicians deal with as they're sort of reinventing their career. So it's sort of interesting. You can have mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, even spiritual patterns can be um, existentially kind of looked at. And my husband's a chaplain. He does quite a bit of work with people around grief. And um, I don't do that work. I mean, I'm trained in hospice and did hospice for many years, but particularly grief can be something that needs to be looked at. In, in that whole continuum as well when you're making transitions. You spoke about, in our pre-interview, you spoke about um, your vision of the possibilities with our the future of healthcare. I would love for you to explore that again with us. And I'd also like to know, you said that the VA has a whole health integrative system in place now and how you, if you have any knowledge of how that's working and. Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna pull it up here so I can tell you. It's, um, so you can actually find the VA system, they call it the circle of health. And from everything that I can gather from clinic, I have friends from the integrative medicine community who are actually part of that VA system and they have Um, It's really incredible. They have coaches, acupuncture, chiropractic, they're trauma-informed. They do an inventory that looks at spiritual health, financial health. They learn mindfulness, meditation. I know it's not perfect, but it's so much better than, than any other system that's existing, that's integrating these things. Um, And they're seeing really positive outcomes, which I think is the other key, right? That these outcomes are coming that are demonstrating the value of the systems like profoundly. And so when I think about the healthcare system, I it's a little bleak for me, honestly, still. I don't, I don't feel like I have hope. Um, I think COVID has, uh, there was a study I read recently that said that one in five clinicians in the healthcare system have anxiety, depression, or PTSD. Now, PTSD is no joke. Uh, I feel like I've dealt with it from a childhood bike accident, which is partly, you know, another story. But I've had to really start to understand what a what a nervous system that's been impacted with PTSD actually physiologically is it 
you're a different person and you need a different therapeutic intervention. And if we're saying one in five conservatively of healthcare providers who've gone through this pandemic, nurses, respiratory, outpatient, whomever, that number is incredibly impactful. Um, this was on top of a system already dealing with significant burnout. And I think we're going to see as the pandemic begins to wind down that these nervous systems are going to try to recalibrate. You know, it's kind of like adrenaline, go, go, go. You could only do it to a point. And I think once the demand for the acuity and the intensity starts to, you know, re-equilibrate back into the system we had prior, these nervous systems are going to be very unsteady. And people are going to be surprised by the amount of intrusive thoughts, depression, anxiety that they're going to be dealing with. And we have no infrastructure for that. So it's a little bleak from my standpoint. However, I know there are really phenomenal people thinking about this. I'm not one of them. I'm not in the system anymore. Um, but there's very bright people thinking about how's that need going to be met and resources. And there's actually, for physicians, there's actually a free psychiatric helpline that can help get them the help they need if they're feeling overwhelmed, underwater, so to speak. Um, from just the delivery of care standpoint, so it's two prongs, right? It's healing the healers and adjusting the system. I've never seen more interest in integrative lifestyle or functional medicine than I've seen in the last year. And we know that practices are starting to really innovate my bias has always been that the group visit model could save everything because you scale the knowledge, you build what you need to build to keep these practices sustainable, and the group transforms itself. Everybody's lonely right now, like in really intangible, epic ways. You may have had your little pod, but through the pandemic, but you know, a lot of people are dealing with a profound sense of isolation and loneliness. And that's its own epidemic in its own right. And so I'm just not that optimistic about the, the care system being able to pivot to deliver the caliber and quality, yet the interest has never been higher. And the younger generations are pretty pragmatic. Like they've grown up with so much more knowledge at their fingertips than I had. Like I had a Palm Pilot when I was a resident and I had note five by seven note cards that I was like, acid-based chemistry, delirium, you know, the acronym. And I'd be like, okay, I got to order this, this, and this. And how do I balance this pH equation and, you know, run the vent, PEEP versus, you know, uh, volume. You know, this is like all these things that I had on little note cards. They like, they have like YouTube videos that are like, when the vent is X, you do X. And then, you know, they just have, but outside of that, they've also been exposed to much more mental health awareness than I think, I mean, any generation has ever had. They've had more adversity and difficulty in their upbringing. They're, they're, they're just different. It lands different. And majority of them have not a huge conflict with the idea that there are whole person healing systems, that lifestyle matters, that nutrition matters, movement matters, sleep matters. So it's really just going to be a matter of how does the system meet the need of delivering that care model. And from my standpoint, it can happen with group visit beautifully. Everyone wins in the group visit model. Is it happening? 
every person that I coach, I talk to them about how to implement a group visit because it's, it's part of how they can really thrive in their practices is through those group visits. Um, because you get two hours to scale, you don't, it's less redundant and the energy of the group begins to transform itself. You don't have to do as much heavy lifting in the office visit. So um, I know about group visits. I um, tried to uh, create group visits in the, in a rural community that I worked in for three years before I just gave up. <laughs> it was too big of a system. There was too much red tape that, um, but it, it's so needed. And even pre-pandemic, loneliness is really high. Many times I'd have people show up to their visits every three months. They wouldn't take, they hadn't adjusted their medication. They, the plan that we had created um, had, had fallen through with whatever exercise that they were going to implement, but they showed up and they had pictures of their grandchildren and stories about. <laughs> and they were so excited for their doctor's visit. Exactly. I mean, 100% or their, you know, their visit with their clinician. Yeah, I think there's, that what happens I think is that there's so much on the plate of the clinician and the C-suite and the admin side, they just don't innovate. It's like profit, 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 maybe a little innovate. And so it's the onus is on the clinician to do the admin pieces of setting up group visits. And I'm livid about that because it's, it should be the opposite. The admin team should be like, how, how can I get this set up for you so that you can come in and do your magic? It's, it is the exact opposite when it comes to group visits. And I, I is it, is it just our propensity to mediocrity? I don't know. Like, is that overly critical? Maybe, but I'm, I'm still a little bitter about it all. Like a group visit should not be like resisted. It is a win, 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 win. Hmm. Patients win, clinicians win, practices win. I'm like speechless. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, I do not understand. I know Jeff Geller, if anyone's listening, would like to learn about a group visit model or a leader in group visits. Jeff Geller is your go-to online. He has a yearly conference. He has resources on his website. He has successfully, one of the few that I know, who has successfully navigated the medical system using primarily a group visit model. And he's very good at teaching it. He's very good at some of the nuances and subtleties that come up when they don't go as well, but it's all figure outable. Mm -hmm. uh, James Maskell wrote that book, The Community, the Community Cure. Yep. He's big on group visits, even though he's not a practitioner. Um, I, I believe you mentioned something about the administration coming in and the younger physicians coming in being more delivering care and delivering um, service through a more feminine energy. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, it, it's such a, it's such a nuanced consideration around gender 
versus like a principle, right? So a, a feminine approach, at least in my context, is one that fully relies on and integrates space holding, if you will, pauses, intuition. So if you, the way that I conceptualize it is that the womb, the Shakti, the womb holds the space in which the fetus develops. Now, not everyone, I didn't have a child, not everyone is capable who identifies as female to have a child, but conceptually the, the role of the womb is to hold the space and to nourish the space so that the child can evolve inside. The womb itself doesn't do the work of the child growing and evolving. So from my standpoint, we can't actually do the transformational work for people, but we can hold a space of awareness and a container that they feel safe and secure within to do that transformational work. Transformational work is very different than going into your doctor and saying, my blood sugar's high, which you need, of course, don't get me wrong. My blood sugar's high. Give me this diabetic medicine. Thanks, I'll be on my way. Or my blood pressure's high. Let me get my thighs out. Thanks, I'm on my way. Or I can't use, I'm chronically constipated. Give me this IBS med. Thanks, I'm on my way. Transformational work is when you go much deeper into the design of a person to figure out why they don't prioritize sleep. What kind of childhood trauma they might have that limits their ability to relax? What is the structure of their day-to-day -day life and how they've integrated their sense of a purpose and alignment? Do they have meaningful work? Do they have meaningful friends? Is their home life safe and secure? Do they have a resource to eat healthy? The, the space of transformation starts looking at all those features in someone's life and saying, if we start to sort of examine why those things are perhaps not nourishing you in whatever space we're talking about, and we can start to bring in slowly, I'm not a fast, I don't believe in fast change. You know, it's like fast food, fast healthcare, so to speak. This is the kind of work that can take months to years. I would often tell people, particularly the really complicated ones, I'd say for as many years as you have not felt yourself is as many months that it will take us to correct conservatively. So if you haven't felt well for 20 years, we're looking at a two-year process. If you haven't felt well for five years, maybe we'll have you feeling better in half year to a year. And... But that intuitive, empathic, non-doing, right? What does it take for a clinician to pause in a moment? So for example, I often found that significant childhood sexual abuse was often a factor in significant obesity, chronic pain, chronic migraines, that people often had never told anyone. They had never told anyone. They were ashamed, embarrassed, no one would believe them. And as I mentioned, I often saw the treatment resistant anything. So if it was treatment resistant migraine, they would find me. If it was treatment resistant IBS, they would find me. So what I learned was that I needed to know how to be quiet and how to pause in a clinical encounter. Meaning if someone is sitting in front of me and I hear the classical conditioning of my training, which is this like 
rhythmic horse. It's like, okay, I got to get this in the chart. I got to get this list. I got to ask you these five questions. I got to document this. And when I would hear like that hand going, you need to pause and check yourself. And then I would be quiet. And then I would regulate my own breath. I would slow my breath down. And I would say, I'm not going to speak in this moment. I'm going to be quiet. And I'm going to see they say that the average clinical visit, I'm not even talking rocket science here, the average clinical visit is somewhere around interrupted around second 14, you know, like somebody's trying to tell their story and the clinician has interrupted them 15 times. They can't even keep their train of thought straight, let alone be given the opportunity to let a long buried memory emerge. But I found that just by being quiet and saying, tell me more, this is Brene Brown's work, you know, that empathic vulnerability is like, tell me more. I'm hearing and, and acknowledging, you know, empathic listening skills that demonstrate you don't have to be vibing totally with them in that you can maintain your own boundaries, but saying, Hey, you know, I'm hearing, I'm hearing some concern about something you might want to talk to me about. Tell me more. And I can't tell you how many times people would say to me, no one even asked me that. No one ever asked me. And of course, then you're in a different territory, which is how do you get the appropriate mental health support for significant trauma, which is a whole nother conversation because trauma-informed healthcare is very difficult to come by in an insurance model. But, but yeah, so I think that when I think of that intuitive feminine model, I think of it in the context of analogy to the womb it's quiet it's kind of got corners that aren't lit you know there's a place of it doesn't have to be clean or clear it doesn't have to feel good it can it can be this sort of constantly shifting but there's a space of security within it that utilizes if we think about it just taking it just one step further if you think about the concept of the cells know how to divide. The cells know the pluripotent pathway they're destined to be a nail or a hair or an eye. We also know how to heal. We also know how to heal, but nobody's facilitating healing. Nobody's facilitating healing. And so that capacity of facilitation of healing is what space holding does. Because then that natural effervescent quality of healing emerges for the person that nobody nobody's given them even permission to explore it's so unfamiliar to most people they feel so disempowered oh you mean i can i can take charge here i can i can come off my medication nobody everyone said i would never come off my medication whether it's diabetic hypertensive mental health you can come off medication if you have a clinician that partners you with you through that journey. Never cold turkey your medicine, please. Again, not medical advice, but um, so many people I worked with, we tapered off medicines at six, eight, 12 month mark. We would do the healing work. We'd get them support they needed, whatever, whatever they could afford, whatever was available. And then we'd work on nutrition, movement, light the senses and boy things start shifting and then people can be empowered 
it's that kind of classic doer, interrupting, doing like, oh, blood pressure, boom, medicine. Oh, uh, you know, MCL injury, oh, surgery, orthopedics. It's like, you know, maybe the body would heal. Like a bunch of MRIs we look at, people have torn meniscus and they're fine. So, um, you know, what is actually happening here with pain and healing? Nobody's really giving clinicians the space. And I think there's a, there's a much bigger discussion around valuing the voice of women in medicine, having to had to adopt a largely patriarchal colonized version of healing and medicine that doesn't actually serve the larger voice of the populace, cis male white version of what healing and medicine looks like. And um, yeah, I had, when I was in my pre-med year at, at UVA, I went in to see the pre-med advisor and um, he pretty much said to me, this is 1994, he said, yeah, I don't think you're going to get into med school. And I don't think you're going to be able to be a doctor. And I was like, how, I was like, you asshole. Like, how many people have you said this to who believed you? They've never seen a penny of my money. I was like, everyone knew that guy was there, the gatekeeper. And I said, you write me a letter, don't, you know, because you need a letter from your undergrad to get to med school. I said, write me a letter, don't write me a letter. I'm going to do this without you. And I did. I got into a bunch of med schools and top 5% on the MCAT. You know, like he just, he just couldn't conceptualize someone like me who was already clearly a little different, but um, he just couldn't conceptualize that someone like me would have a place in medicine. He said, you want to have a family. I mean, and not to say that there isn't value in doing pathways other than doctor. It's a beast of a journey. But if you have a call to do it, who who is this old white guy at some conservative Southern school to say to me, yeah, I don't think you'll be a good doctor. I don't think you're going to get in. I'm not going to write you a letter of recommendation that's favorable. Unbelievable. I left there livid. I mean, but see, that's how I'm different, right? Not every person has that spitfire in them to be like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Like I was pretty much like, ah, it's a call to arms, you know, like, okay, I just need to work. I'm just going to prove him hundred percent wrong. But there were a lot of people that maybe didn't have, they're built differently. Like I just have that little bit of fire in me, but that's other people don't have that. They have other gifts. And so I just, I feel like medicine is percolated with that mindset. It permeates through all kinds of administrative and often C-suite and upper division management is all white men. It's, ugh. Mm. Ugh. Just, it's like, meh. and you know, some of it has to do, and I'm in a lot of physician groups that talk about this. And some of it has to do with the fact it's just pure hours, labor, and energy. Women often are in dual physician households, or they don't have a stay-at-home husband. So they have a primary caretaking role with their children and they cannot give the energy that someone who has been doing all the household chores and not responsible as much for child rearing can put into their career. It's just a logistical thing. 
but we'll see this lip service that says, oh, we need more diversity and more women's voice. But when it comes down to like, what does that pragmatically look like? It means restructuring what we think the commitment of a leadership role needs to be. No one's, no one's prepared to have that discussion. And so the gate the gates stay closed, the ceiling stays intact. And women who break through often do so at some expense to their personal lives, to their children, to themselves. Some do it well and thrive, but that's not the norm. And I'm in a lot of physician groups where it's discussed pretty routinely, but some really do. And hey, kudos to them. They're built a certain way that they just navigate the system brilliantly and they negotiate and they, you know, they come to the table, they know their worth, they don't get paid less. I think even just the pay disparity, ah, mind boggling, <laughs> doing the same job, but better because research shows that women physicians, clinicians actually deliver better care, but will be paid less. Hmm. Yeah. So negotiating salary is something that a lot of women have difficulty with. And I work on that sometimes in my coaching. I'm like, this is your worth. And, you know, the risk taking that can go with coming into negotiation of saying, I will walk away from this deal, which is something we more think classically of men doing. Like women will be like, well, okay, okay. You know, I'll take 10 grand less and I want to, I want this job. And classically, we might think of a man saying, cool, bye, I'm going to go look for other work. It's part of their negotiating technique. And they get the higher salary because they need them. And anyway, there's a lot of nuances to this gender piece. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure. Hope I haven't offended anyone listening down the road. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of nuance to how we think about those that identify as female in medicine and how how they navigate through this very vast, now mostly corporatized system. That's an important conversation to have. So thank you for bringing that to light. Um, you're an innovator. You've mentioned that word multiple times throughout this and I, we can see it and the way that you've um, navigated your career and where you are now. What is that vision? What is that vision of healthcare that you have or healing or in, in 20 years or five years or tomorrow? What would that be for you? What would that look like? You know, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with my husband about this yesterday. And it's actually kind of somber for me because I'm really, I'm really letting go. I'm really saying I don't want to come back into the system at all. I just don't. I'm much more, I'm much better adjusted, not being in medicine, not doing, not doing the work anymore. I don't really know what that means, but like, there's a part of me that's just fully having a ceremony. Like literally there's a funeral for my career at the moment because it's, I, you know, I'm, because at some point you have to say, am I going to renew my licenses? Am I going to get CME? It's very expensive to keep all that up if you're not getting paid to do clinical work. Um, it can be tens of thousands of dollars a year if you're triple board certified like I am. And so, you know, we've had a series of very somber conversations. So I think I'm actually still in a grieving process of sort of a dream unrealized and a focus 
of the medical community never meeting me again why did that happen how did i contribute we could wax philosophically but at the end of the day it was a toxic relationship for me and beneficial it's a classic narcissist <laughs> picture it's like take 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 give 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 and i did it primarily for the value to the patients because i could see suffering and there's a part of me that is just highly drawn to alleviating or creating the space for the alleviation of suffering for others i can't i cannot deny that that exists as a primal invitation of my life but um i think i'm just moving into a space where it's much more gentle it's like i have always wanted to write a book i would love to have a flower farm i maybe i'll run retreats i don't actually know um i don't know the ayurveda i mean literally the knowledge that i have is so rare it's it's so intersectional in so many systems but I, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't innovate and be a pioneer in a system that's stonewalls you at every, every opportunity it gets. And so I wish I had a more optimistic ending to this story, but I'm actually like fully grieving it. It's been kind of a sad and heavy time, but um, it's a delight to have had this conversation because it reminds me of some really positive things that I've done in the context of that work. Because lately it's just really been the like the letting the deep, deep letting go of something that I when I was in my in the early 90s, when I first got in, the invitation, I like to say to learn and study these principles, I wanted to be part of an integrative healing center. Literally, I mapped it out whole thing. 30 years I waited for all the variables of that to come together and it never did. And I tried at so many different intersecting points. And I, you know, I don't know if I just am a seed planter and the, the things that the, the ideas and innovations and conversations that I've had through the course, I definitely have people who've known me a long time who circle back, you know, I trained at Mayo and a dear friend of mine st stayed in the Mayo system. And recently we were talking and they have a whole integrative department that she was instrumental in bringing into their particular facility and she said it was based on my respect for you as a person she said you you are the definition of a healer you are who we all should strive to be as a physician and when i left my last employer my the cmo said the same thing to me he said you you are you're who we all should strive to be but you can't be that side out that much ahead of the system and not expect it to impact you as an individual as a human being it's sort of like you just can't can't have expected it to have been a, a an all good equation. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know the ending to the story yet. I, I really don't. But I'm definitely um, I'm definitely grieving and letting go because I just can't keep circling back into the system to to be um, denied or I don't even know the words. It's just just reaching a level of completion in this life for this time it doesn't mean that i will stop supporting others or coaching but just really letting go of the idea that i'm going to go back into a clinical environment yeah could you see that could you see not going back into the system maybe sitting by the pool eating bonbons with yeah. <laughs> the siri shunned 
Academy of Ayurvedic and Vedic Wisdom and just hanging out with people, talking to them about your gift and then them going out into the world of whatever healthcare system or own private practice. I think so. You know, in a lot of ways, like I know, I know a lot of the nuances of what doesn't work. So I'm actually kind of, it's a, it is of value of having had that experience because it helps me understand where someone needs to innovate or where they're getting pushback or what's happening for them in their career. But I also think it's okay for me to enjoy my life too. And I think, you know, that's really what you're saying is, you know, is it okay for you? Is it okay in the letting go that it's actually a birth of something very pleasant and enjoyable as opposed to the really grind and toil of the last 30 years coming to deep, deep close? Because it's been a lot of work to gain all that knowledge. And I, I never really, you know, in order to have studied all the things that I have, I never really drew full salaries. So it's not like I'm wealthy either. You know, it's not like I'm retiring with ease. It's more like, okay, you know, this acquisition of knowledge and this self-discovery isn't something that necessarily was a very lucrative journey. Again, I could have maybe looked at concierge, but it just, I don't know. There's just something about that that just never settled in me. I know for some people, it's really the right, it's the right thing, but it wasn't for me. So yeah, I think so. Come, come to the farm, pick flowers with me, make medicinal honey, hang out, feel rejuvenated, go back into the world and do your magic. So yeah, I could totally see that. In fact, that's my, I kind of have this vision of a, a space that does that really not for the general public as much though, really more for healers that need, need that space of awareness and gentleness and nature's very healing and free. Yeah, exactly. Like the other tools. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm so grateful for this conversation and your time. Um, would you like to tell our audience where they can find you? Sure. So, um, and thank you for such compassionate listening and thoughtful questions and really the journey of what your intention is. And um, I'm, I'm going to send you all lots of positive energy that the things you're endeavoring to do and the people that you work with and touch with your podcast and your intention um, that that fully, you know, comes to life because I think it's really valuable. And this conversation is, has been healing in its own way for me. Um, but people can find me at D-O-C-T-O-R. So Dr. Siri Chand, S-I-R-I-C-H-A-N-D, um, pretty much anywhere, mm -hmm. Pinterest, Clubhouse, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I have a Facebook group that has some free cooking. Uh, it's a free Facebook group that has cooking oriented. Uh, I have a blog that has lots of recipes. I do um, short video kind of things on my Instagram. So different platforms sort of have different aspects of things, but, um, and I'm still trying to figure out what kind of voice I want to have in the social media space. Some, some part of me is also like, I don't really want to strive there either, but I also like to create. So it's a, it's a 
it's an on and off kind of journey. Well, I have no doubt that you are going to be healing in the years to come, and we can't wait to touch base with you at some point in the future and see what that looks like. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you, Siri Chant. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so happy you're here. We look forward to bringing you more stories from the healer's journey on healthcare from the soul. If you've loved this podcast, please let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts to support us getting the word out. As our gift to you, we'll send you a meditation. Just screenshot your review and email us at healthcarefromthesoul at gmail.com. Thank you. And until next time, we're sending all our love.